Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus in our country today, that will make you different. Uh, you are a different. Uh, one of the, my former professors, uh, Stuart MacDonald, along with a colleague of his, uh, Brian Clark, they are uh, researchers, sociologists. They write this, Canada has become a post-Christian society, and churches can no longer act as though Canada's culture is a Christian one as they once did. Okay, so just to highlight a few of, of, of uh, the details about this, let me share with you a few graphics. In 1961, 90%, 96% of Canadians identified as Christian. Can you, can you believe that? This is census data. 96% identified as Christians. So, you know, that they're acknowledging that, you know, they're from a, you know, a Presbyterian, Anglican, Baptist, whatever kind of background. 96%, less than 1% indicated that they had no religion. Less than 1%. So imagine lining up 100 people, sampling like, you know, average Canadians, 96 of them would identify somehow with the Christian faith. Uh, in 2021, 67% of Canadians identify as Christian, but only 23 attend at least one church-related activity once a month. So I want to say something about census data too, of course, because just because someone ticks something on a census box, that doesn't mean they're genuinely living as a disciple of Jesus. So we just need to acknowledge that, right? And so maybe someone's like, oh, my grandma took me to United Church when I was four for a week, you know, and they tick United, you know. Um, some, you don't know what's the motivation in people's minds when they are ticking these things. Uh, but we can see sort of trends happening. Only 23% attend at least one church-related activity once a month once a month. So um, weekly worship attendance, there's no hard data on that, but based on the different people that I've talked to, an educated guest would be somewhere between 5 and 10%, right? So, so if you're kind of attending a, a worship service uh, here online, uh, weekly or making an effort to do so, and I realize sometimes there's a conflict with work, you're out of town, you're sick, things happen, I get that, um, but that's a pretty small percentage. Now, 25% indicate that they have no religion. So no religion is now the second biggest religious category in Canada. That is a very dramatic and significant change. I also need to say that these represent data, and although it says 2021, this was gathered from before the pandemic. And so um, the pandemic has come, and that has likely accelerated all these trends at least a decade into the future a decade into the future. So this can make us seem out of step, right, with the people around us. And maybe you've, uh, maybe you've had a situation, you've been at some sort of family gathering and someone finds you're religious and all of a sudden you're the weird one or uh, maybe something happens at work or something about God comes up or, or church or your faith or Jesus, right? So this makes you seem kind of out of step and you probably feel that tension as you go out uh, living your way in the world. Now, granted, just like I said, we, we have to take with a grain of salt stuff that comes to us through census data information. But when you look at what was going on in 1961, 96% identified as Christian. So therefore, in that context, that's over 50 years ago, in that context, to say that you went to church or to say that you believed in Jesus wasn't a weird thing. That didn't put you on the outside. People expected that. It was kind of like, that's the thing that everyone did, right? Doesn't mean everyone was a genuine disciple of Jesus, but that's the thing. It wouldn't have made you seem as weird today. That is certainly not the case. Now, uh, there's different responses that people have to this uh, when this occurs. Um, some, people, some people's response becomes like this, me against the world mentality. Things have changed. It's me against the world. It's, it's them against me or them against us, right? Or um, there's no godliness left in the world. So people kind of can take this extreme kind of they assume this victim status, uh, that. And, and 
we got to regard that, you know, even though the landscape is changing, it's still pretty good. There's a lot of religious freedoms. Uh, we can gather and worship openly. Um, you know, so um, persecution is pretty uh, intense and violent in many parts of the world against followers of Jesus. I think it's going to get worse and harder for us here. But still, the freedoms that we have are pretty, are pretty broad. So that's one response that people have. Other people have a, a different response, which is to knowing that they feel different and knowing that we don't like to feel different. And generally speaking, we like to fit in. Another response is to water down the faith. It's to water it down. It's to kind of make it seem more normal or cool or socially acceptable. And when that happens, we explain away the difficult teachings. Ah, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Or we start to take the church less seriously. It's just a man-made institution anyway. No, no, no. It's established by God. Like, oh, no, we, we start to take it less seriously we start to become more casual about how we volunteer or how we serve others. And when we talk to others about God, if we ever do talk about it, we talk about him in such a way that it makes people think that we believe in a, in a big sort of friend in the sky who just wants us all to be happy. Yay! But there's a different way to respond to being different. When people see, think that you're different, they see you're different because of your devotion to Jesus, there's a different way to respond. And today's text gives us a beautiful example of what that is, and it's Mary. Now, not Mary Magdalene, not Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. There's a separate Mary, okay? This is Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus, also the sister of Martha. So we come across against Mary and Martha several times uh, in the Bible. And we're going to be looking to her, and she's going to give us an example of what it means to be devoted to Jesus, even when others think you're different, okay? So let's open our uh, Bibles. We're looking through uh, the Gospel according to John, and we're now at chapter 12. So we've been going through line by line, verse by verse, through the entire Gospel of John. And uh, John, as you recall, is an apostle. He is as a disciple of Jesus, so he was there, right? He is there physically. He's writing things down. He's recording. He's able to talk to Jesus if he, you know, lacks clarity, whatever. He is there. This is a first-person eyewitness reportage. And uh, it's so powerful. So we're going through, and we're coming on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus, which was no small thing. It's a very powerful story. And so chapter 12, we're only going to read the first 11 verses. I'm reading from the ESV. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they give a dinner for him there. No kidding. Martha served, and Lazarus was uh, one of those reclining with him at table. So a couple of things. Uh, it's six days before the Passover, so that probably means the Saturday previous. And remember that the Passover festival is an annual pilgrimage festival. So <clears throat> three times a year at these different festivals, people would come to Jerusalem from the surrounding towns and areas. And so if Jerusalem is a certain population, it's going to swell with religious pilgrims at the time. Uh, one of the towns that was close to me growing up is Port Carling. In the winter, it's very small. In the summer, it's very big. Like you try to drive through Port Carling in the middle of July, right? All the tourists and the lakes and everything else. And so Jerusalem is just swelled with pilgrims. And this is this religious uh, freedom festival, right? Because this is our annual remembrance of when God freed the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And so uh, freedom is in the air. You can, you can imagine the pilgrims walking around and, and people have taken time off of work and from the fields and their other responsibilities and, and families in some situations. They're there. They're singing spiritual hymns and psalms about freedom and deliverance and they're saying prayers together and there's the activity in the temple. It's wonderful. But at the same time, there's tension in the air. And the tension is because they're there celebrating their own freedom, 
but they don't totally have it. They have some freedoms, they don't have all their freedoms because um, they're really, the, the governing Romans are really calling the shots. So imagine us, it's, it's Canada Day and we're on Parliament Hill, yeah, we're waving flags and we're singing O Canada, but another country has come in and taken over Parliament. Uh, that's going to kind of change the tone of things, isn't it, a little bit, right? Because we, we're celebrating the freedom that we have had in the past, and we still have a little bit, but we don't fully have it. And so this also heightened this expectation and desire for a deliverer, for a long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed one, his chosen king and representative on the earth. So people are waiting for this. And in the very next story is the one we usually read on Palm Sunday. Very next story, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, people are waving palm branches, you know, blessed is the king of Israel. So there's this expectancy of further deliverance to get out of the yoke of Roman oppression. So that's the idea with Passover, they're at Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. Um, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember, we just need to pause. Uh, We talked about the the last two Sundays, how awesome an event that was. So You know, Jesus is away. Martha and Mary are the sisters. They're crying. If Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus comes. He offers a prayer. He weeps. He's so involved in the situation. He's emotionally moved by it all. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And this guy, you know, we're almost at Halloween. This guy who looks like a mummy walks out of the tomb like dead man walking. He comes out. Everyone's flabbergasted and amazed. Jesus demonstrated that he has power even over death. So this has happened, and so they give a dinner for him. The word for dinner here is the main meal of the day, so it's probably late uh, afternoon, early evening. And then they're all there. Martha served. Lazarus is there reclining at the table. He was dead, and he's at the table. Verse 3, Mary, one of the sisters, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay, so a pound of expensive ointment, so uh, made from pure nard. So this is um, an aromatic oil extracted from a nard plant, and you can't just get it anywhere. It's imported from northern India, and that's part of the reason it's so valuable. So a pound, this is a Roman pound, so that's a bit less than a modern pound, but it's a lot. And part of the reason this is so extravagant, part of the reason this is going to like freak people out is because it is so valuable. So what she has done, the, the oil that she has used, this aromatic oil, is the equivalent in value to a year's wages for a laborer. These people don't have a lot of money in these stories, okay? So I did the, did the research. I went on to my little friend Google, and I looked, uh, what is in Canada the average annual uh, wage for a laborer? It's $30,000. So it might fluctuate a little bit, but consider that she has poured out $30,000 worth to anoint Jesus. Well, as I said, these aren't people who have like a, a, a lot of money, and um, they're, they're praying for daily bread, they're praying for daily provision, and she does this out of an act of devotion because of what Jesus has done for her. Poor people aren't wasteful, and Mary isn't wasteful. We think she's wasteful, but she's not because she recognizes who Jesus is. Remember those old MasterCard commercials, like the priceless commercials? And I was trying to remember one, and I'm, I'm recalling from memory here, so I might not get all the details right. But there's this cute little frizzy-haired girl, and she's sitting at the breakfast table. And the narrator's, and she's kind of, you know, uh, having a good time. And the narrator's saying, you know, 
how much does it cost to get things to help her be successful in life? You know, like a globe, $18. Books for school, $30. You know, all these shoes, you know, $45. It was a couple of years ago. Um, can't get shoes for that much now. Anyway, all these things, right? And then she takes this bowl of cereal and she goes to drink it and she pours it all over herself. And the narrator says something like, uh, you know, the, but living each day to the fullest, priceless, right? That's the idea. For everything else, there's MasterCard. And no, MasterCard did not pay me to say that. But consider the case of Mary. She's there. Her brother has been dead. She's been weeping. Everyone's there. People are in town are gathered. Her brother's dead. Jesus comes, brings him back to life, assures them of eternal life. They get to spend time with the Son of God and the Messiah, sharing his wisdom in their very presence priceless. And so therefore, she shows it in this wonderful act of devotion. Now the next uh, line is really interesting. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Ever gone into a house and it smells of something? Maybe it smells of B.O. Not so good. (laughs) Not, Not so good. Maybe you go into a house and it smells like laundry detergent. You know, some some people have been doing laundry. That's better than the B.O. Imagine going into, it's interesting, when Laura and I were going around to buy houses, a lot of them smelled like chocolate, I mean, chocolate chip cookies when we went in. Interesting. That's a wonderful smell that fills a house. This is part of the staging of houses, right? Well, here we learn that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's that much of it. It fills the house. But there's something also going on here, too. This is evidence that John was there. All these details keep coming up because John was actually there. He remembers what it, was, what it was like in there. He remembers what it smelled like, so he records this. There's a professor named Derek Tovey. He says, as you go through the Gospel of John, all the time you see evidence of on-the-spot eyewitness reporting. And this is just another one of those cases. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? which is a year's wages for laborers, 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Okay, so uh, a couple of things. Judas is a thief. Later he will betray Jesus for 30 you know, silver coins, right? And so Judas is hungry for money, not integrity. And so this shows us he doesn't, he doesn't, he could, he could care less about the poor, and he's like, well, if we, if we had sold that, there'd be so much more in the money bag, and I could have, you know, dug into it with my filthy hands. So we're told about his motives, but it's also interesting because in this telling of this story from Matthew 26 and Luke 14, it's not just Judas who has that concern, other people. So, so Mary, is, Mary is doing all sorts of weird things. And by the way, one of the things I hadn't mentioned, I probably should, is that uh, Mary wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. You ever notice that? How strange. What? Why does she do that? Now, in that time, that also would have made her different because it was not customary. It was not considered appropriate for a woman to let down her hair in public. Uh, it's not the case now, obviously, but, uh, uh, and rightly so. But at that time, you, you would only do that uh, in your own house. And so here she does that. Now, nothing improper is going on, but she is just so devoted to him. It's like she needs a towel. She uses her hair. She's so committed to Jesus. It's such a beautiful, beautiful part of the story. Anyway, but here we learn that Judas, uh, he, he could care less about the poor. He's just trying to be rich. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Okay, so Jesus defends her. 
Think of how much provision could be uh, purchased for the poor for a year's wages, and Jesus defends her actions. What she has done is a very good thing. Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So on the surface, what's happening here is not only does he defend her, but yet again he's saying that he will die, and that's never a secret. He's not surprised by what is going to happen to him. He foretells it, right? And so this is coming up, my burial. So in the ancient world, people would sometimes anoint someone with oil and other fragrances when they died. Number one is a sign of respect. Number two, also because the body started to decompose. This is the pre-scientific area. The body's going to start to smell. And so certain things happen so that, you know, the, the body doesn't smell for a while anyway, right? So you think that is here, so keep it, keep, keep the oil, for some more of it for that day? Or is, it, is Jesus saying to keep the memory? We're not totally sure. But what I think we're supposed to take away from this is another detail that it's so obvious we almost miss. The word Messiah means anointed one. It means anointed one. God's chosen king and representative on the earth. And he's just about to go to the cross in Jerusalem, right? And the story that we're going to hear as the you know, next couple chapters unfold. So I think what's happening here is Mary is anointing Jesus not only for his death, but to show the people around us and others that he is in fact God's chosen king. He is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, kings are anointed, right? David in 1 Samuel 16 is anointed with oil, and here Jesus is anointed, but not by some lofty prophet who people respect, but by this woman who just shows this incredible gratitude. She's soaked in gratitude. She's soaked in gratitude and, and, and just devotion for Jesus, and here she anoints him as he should rightly be. All right, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, I just want to say that this is not a passage that we can cite to justify neglect of the poor, because some people have done that through time. I remember talking with a person uh, before I moved to Barrie, and this person was saying, you know what, maybe helping the poor shouldn't be at the top of our priority list because they're always going to be with us, and they cited this verse. And so, um, but that's a, that's a misunderstanding of what's going on. Jesus is probably actually alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy 15, 11, where it says, the poor you will always have with you in the land, but because of that, you need to help them. So they're going to be around, so the fact that they are there means not that you neglect them, but that you find some way to help them. And so, what was Jesus meaning here? Well, it could just mean, yeah, the, the, the pool are always here, and hey, you're disciples, you're my followers, and since you're going to gain a reputation for helping other people, poor are always going to be with you because they know you're disciples and they can get help from you. Could be a meaning. It could also simply meaning that, mean that we live in this broken, sinful world and poverty is, is a part of it, and it's going to be around until Jesus returns. It could mean that. But I think what here the thrust is, is really that we live in this broken world and there is poverty. You need to be helping, but sometimes... First things need to come first, like when the Lord is in your presence, and you need to attend to him. So imagine uh, the queen comes to your door, or the king comes to your door. It's a beautiful royal visit, and, and, and it's amazing, and there's this huge royal entourage, and they're coming up the driveway, and you slip out the back door because you've committed to doing your neighbor's laundry. Now, I'm not saying that the neighbor's laundry isn't important, but first things first here, this is a royal visit. You need to attend to that first, and other things will flow out from that. And by saying this, I don't mean to you know, downplay or disregard the needs of the poor. Jesus, so many places, tells us to attend to their needs, uh, but here it's a matter of first things first. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the chief priests are the uh, kind of the religious power brokers in the temple system. Uh, they're there. Previously, remember, they had plotted to kill Jesus. He has shown his power of life over death. He is taught with authority. People are coming to him. They're believing in him, and they want to maintain the status quo, so they're going to plan to kill Jesus. Now, because Lazarus is living evidence of that power, they enfold him with their sinister uh, schemes. And so we're going to end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mary, with the rescue of her brother from the grip of death, Seeing Jesus' power over death itself, understanding who Jesus was, who he has come to be, born to die that we might live, and being able to walk uh, with him and hear his teachings and receive everything from him, Mary gives him this wonderful gift and anoints him. Okay. What does she do? She doesn't give him the leftovers. She doesn't give him the leftovers. See, the thing with Mary that I think is so beautiful is she is one of the only people in the course of the Gospels who fully understands the magnitude of what Jesus has done before he's dead. It's such a beautiful moment. She's, and, she's, and, she, and she anoints him, and she gives him this costly gift. She doesn't give him the leftovers. She gives him what is so, so very valuable to herself. And so I started off this message by saying that, you know what, things are, are very different here in our landscape in Canada. And when that happens, people can respond in a few different ways. Some people kind of come up with a kind of a me-against-the-world mentality. They kind of, you know, entrench themselves in some sort of psychological position. Other people try to water down what Jesus says. And, oh, it's, you know, it's make it socially acceptable and kind of, you know, argue away all the things that make us seem different or maybe out of step uh, with the culture of large. But Mary gives us a different example. It is one of costly, wholehearted devotion. And I think one of the things that she teaches us out of this is that Jesus wants the best of us, not what's left of us. Because how often is that the case? Jesus wants the best of us, not what's left of us. Say it with me. Jesus wants the best of us, not what's left of us. There's this great uh, note in the Reformation Heritage King James Study Bible. It says, how can you imitate Mary's costly devotion? Now, when we say that, uh, I'm not making an application to our lives in terms of money. Although that case can be made, some people have money and, and God has blessed them in a very material way and, and a part of their devotion is going to be building up uh, the work of God in the world, absolutely. But, so that, that, that is a fair application, but I'm actually talking about broader things, other things. Maybe you've got some talent or ability that God wants you to use for his purpose and you doing that, it might be costly to you it might be a sign of great devotion. It might even hurt the extent to which you are giving, but guess what? It's a part of your costly devotion that is wholehearted. How many times does the word wholehearted come up in the scripture as an ideal? Time and time again. Not partial hearted, wholehearted. Maybe it's some time that you have and you're going to give to a special project. Maybe you're in some opportunity or situation that God has put into your life right now. What do I do with this time? Well, wait a second. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to show costly, wholehearted devotion because Jesus wants the best of us, not what's left of us. Now, what I'd like to do is ask uh, three questions. I'll put them up here on the screen, one by one. As we kind of think through this 
and try to apply it to our lives, okay? Is something you're doing for Jesus costly? Is something you're doing for Jesus costly? If we have truly appreciated who he is and what he has done for us, are we giving back to him somehow? Or are we giving him the leftovers? And my guess is you think you're going through your mind right now. You're thinking there's this, there's this, maybe that, maybe that. If it's costly, you know it. Because it's difficult to do sometimes. It's, it's a challenge. Maybe sometimes you feel like <laughs> maybe it's not worth it. Or, 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 or maybe no one notices. Or, or I'm not sure, you know, if it costs you something. Sometimes that's the point. Think of that story in Mark 12. There's this, remember that, the poor widow? And she's outside of the temple treasury. She's out there. And uh, Jesus is watching with some of the disciples. And she comes up and she puts in two little copper coins worth about a penny. What's a penny? What does Jesus do? He commends her for it. Because the other people gave out of their abundance. But this woman gave out of her poverty, out of all she had. Why did he commend her so much? Was it because what she did was very valuable? No, but it was valuable to her. And that's what mattered. Widows had it hard in the ancient world. It was so very hard. There weren't the supports that there are now. There's a whole bunch of different factors going on. She could have used that for other things, but she did it out of devotion to God, and that was its value. And so as you think about this, applying this idea to your life, is something you're doing for Jesus costly? Second question Does your weekly schedule allow you to put Jesus first? Because if we're talking about priorities and if we're talking about leftovers, what has happened is that we have clustered our schedule, not always, but sometimes, so full that God gets what's left. And part of the reason, part of the soul sickness about jamming our schedule so full all the time is because what we're doing is, and sure, some of it's good and some of it's important and some of it's necessary, but sometimes we jam it in with these extra things, so much so that we leave God on the perimeter somewhere. It's a way of kind of really making ourselves into a little idol when you put ourselves right in the very middle. And so I encourage you to look at your schedule. What if some opportunity did come to, to sacrifice something for God or to give something to God or, or get engaged in some special project and you're like, it just can't happen or I'm not willing to change anything to make it happen. Maybe that's the problem. Does your weekly schedule allow you to put Jesus first? Now, the third question is not on the screen because, um, you know, modern days of technology, the sermon kind of for, for groups and different people and the graphics all need to be done Friday afternoon. But a sermon is never really done until I get up here and deliver it. So um, <clears throat> as I was thinking about this and praying about this and going over it, uh, and quite often it will change on the spot too, that, that happens. Um, a third question came up, and here it is. Is there something costly you're already doing which you can dedicate to Jesus. Because as you look through this, I I, I want us to be honest, sometimes we're already doing things that are costly, that are sacrificial to us. You're already doing it. And and you've kind of forgotten the reason why you're doing it in the first place. Why am I doing this? But you trace back to the original reason. It might be to honor someone who needs help. It It might be some kingdom of God purpose in the world. It might be some wonderful purpose and you forgot what it is. This past week I was talking to someone and uh, someone a part of the congregation, we had a good conversation, and she's doing this. Uh, she's doing something. She's living in a very sacrificial way for someone 
uh, in her family, and it's a beautiful thing. And so maybe you're someone who is like that, and I want to think, okay, maybe there's something you're already doing that is costly, it is sacrificial, it's difficult. And what I want you to do is I want you to dedicate it to Jesus. You are doing this, and you're going to get down on your knees. Dear God, I've been doing this, and it's hard. I do it because I honor you, and I love your way, and I love your will, and, and I want to be your loving servant in the world. So, Lord, I'm going to dedicate this project or this responsibility or whatever it is I'm, to you and to your glory, Lord. Give me the strength to do it because I do it first and foremost to you. Jesus wants the best of us, not what's left of us. And as I say this, I want to say two questions. First is you're right. And as we go through something like this, and whenever there's a sermon that's heavy on the theme of commitment or sacrifice, as this one is, I want to just reiterate that we, we don't always do it right. We mess up. And I just want to say this because as we hear this, it's like, okay, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm not doing that. Maybe I have clustered my schedule in such an unhelpful way, or, or, or maybe I have been living for me, and I, and I haven't ever showed my costly devotion, and God always gets my leftovers, but never my first fruits. So maybe that's you, and I just want to say, you know, what makes us right with God, it's not what we have done, it's what Christ has done for us, right? And so we come to him, we ask for forgiveness, each day is a new day. And so maybe today's the first day where you, you look at your schedule and realize, you know what, I'm going to start changing some things because I need to be serious about my devotion to the one who has given absolutely everything to me. Okay? The second is, is that when we offer Jesus our costly, wholehearted devotion, it makes our life better, not worse. And we need to say this because if we become accustomed to living a life that is fundamentally around our selfish priorities and we, we get that reinforced all the time by the blogs we read, the radio shows, the, the news, the, the, the messages of the culture, everything, it, it just so, it's just whatever you want, whatever you feel, that's, that's what's most important, right? And so all of a sudden if we make some change and start living for God or sacrifice something for him, we can think, oh, this is going to be not really good for me and, and i got to live with a cloud over my head the rest of my life. That's not so. The more you do it, the better your life becomes. And all of a sudden you start to go to bed and your conscience is clear more than it was before because you know you're doing something that matters. As I've said before, I've talked to people, many people in the final moments of their life, they look back on a life lived. It's so beautiful and wonderful, and I love it. I wish you could hear some of these things. People saying, they look back on their life and they've made mistakes, but the people say legitimately that they have no regrets? And people usually do have regrets. They say that, but they usually do. But what they mean is that God was a priority for them. They lived differently as a result. Therefore, they had this deep inner purpose and peace, and they know that they didn't waste their life. And that feels so good at the end of a life lived. So yes, we are different. But friends, let me tell you this. The goal isn't fitting in, it's faithfulness. The goal isn't fitting in, it's faithfulness. Yes, people can adopt a me-against-the-world mentality. Yes, people can, some, people can sort of water down the faith to make it seem more normal and socially acceptable to everybody. Or we could just show Jesus such beautiful, costly devotion that we orient our lives around the principle that it's all about faithfulness, not fitting in. And let me tell you, to the people around us, and to God especially, it's a beautiful thing. In his very aptly titled book called Forgotten God, Francis Chan writes this, the church cannot help but be different. Disciples cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. Let me leave you with this thought. Uh, Donald Miller, uh, in a book, he talks about uh, a kind of a, a, 
a really kind of key moment in his life when something changed. And up to that point, he says, really, my conception of God was the slot machine God. Now, here's the slot machine God. The slot machine God is like you put a little in, you get a little out, just like a slot machine, right? Not really central to your life, the slot machine God, a little bit in, a little out. And something changed for him at a particular moment. And uh, let me narrate what he says. This is how the bomb fell. He writes, for my, mo- for my mother that year, I had purchased a shabby Christmas gift. A book, the contents of which she could never be interested in. I had had a sum of money with which to buy presents, and the majority of it I used to buy fishing equipment as Roy and I had started fishing in the creek behind Walmart. My extended family opens gifts on Christmas Eve, leaving the immediate family to open gifts the next morning. And so in my room that night were wonderful presents, toys, games, candy, clothes, as I lay in bed, I counted and categorized them in the moonlight, the battery-operated toys of greatest importance to the underwear, which is of no consequence at all. So in the moonlight, I drift in and out of an anxious sleep, and this is when it occurred to me that the gift I had purchased for my mother was bought with the petty change left after I had pleased myself. The gift I had purchased for my mother was bought with the petty change left over. Left after I had pleased myself, I realized I had set the happiness of my mother beyond my own material desires. Huh. Amen.